Coach Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. On this episode of Celeb Savant, I'll be speaking to Anthony Phillips. Anthony is an English musician, songwriter, producer, and singer who gained prominence as original lead guitarist of the rock band Genesis. He left the band in July 1970. Phillips released his first solo album, The Geese and the Ghost, in 1977. He continues to release solo material, including further solo albums, television and film music, collaborations with several artists, and compilation albums of his recordings. Up next on Celeb Savant, we will be speaking to Anthony Phillips. Where do we find you in the world? What's happening in your life and how are you doing? Well, I'm, um, I've had a bit of a rough year in terms of um, physical side, actually. I've had, a, uh, unfortunately, been sort of grounded musically slightly with um, maybe old age is catching up on me. But yeah, I had a right wrist problem, uh, which sorted itself out after about four or five months. And uh, I couldn't play much during that time. And then my physio thinks that I overcompensated. This is all very boring. And so then I've had an issue with my left shoulder and neck inflammation. So I spent a lot of this year sort of um, like, um, you know, I suppose in football terms, it would be since we've got a big tournament at the moment, you know, yeah. sort of sort of I'm, I'm on the injury. T- I'm in the injury on an injury table. So, yeah. So, uh, so it's been kind of frustrating, really. But luckily, there's still back catalogue stuff to put out. And I'm still involved in library music and stuff like that. So, you know, there's always things being pushed and things happening, but it's been frustrating in terms of uh, new material because I felt very restricted by it. But, you know, this has happened to so many people in the past. I mean, poor Keith Emerson being one of the, one of the most disastrous examples. Um, and, um, yeah, I know a number of electric guitarists who suffer with left shoulder problems because yeah. of the years of, the heavy electric guitar on the left shoulder and i i think at sort of when you get into your late 60s 70s you do start to sort of um the 50 years of thrashing away the wear and tear you tend to forget it's the same body that's the one that won't let you you know sort of pole vault anymore you know <laughs> stuff like that but you, you you somehow think this body is immune to to um you know to to the any restrictions when it comes to playing but nobody it's the same body so you have to learn to manage it. Hopefully you're healing and getting better. So let's take it. Yes, you've mentioned it's been a number of years. So let's take it back to the Anthony Phillips story, the hybrid version of your musical journey. I know, like I said, it's many decades. But for those listeners who don't know the Anthony Phillips story, let's get your story from the your mouth, the hybrid version. You don't want the more than electric one. Your whole story, your whole musical no, story. Ju- I was joking about cars, hybrid and now electric. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I've got no plug-in point here. Sorry, I've only got I'm only hybrid still, so that's all I can offer. Let's that's, keep it hybrid. We'll keep fine. it hybrid. Okay. You're killing me. You're killing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Anthony Phillips story. I mean, how far do you back? Do you want me to go from the beginning? What motivated you you to get into music as a child, teenager, and how it progressed from there? Uh, I think another guy at school playing the guitar. And also um, we had an impromptu band. Uh, I was aware of what we call boarding school here. Well, we call it, we call it, 
public school, but of course it's actually private school. You know, it's one of those English things where it's it's just a trick. You know, it's the wrong way around, so you can laugh at foreigners when they get it wrong. It's pathetic, really. But yeah, prison camp or AKA, uh, sorry, private school, AKA prison camp. Uh, so you're kind of locked away in this place for sort of two thirds of the year. But yeah, no, I, I, I the um, this is we're kind of talking early to mid sixties. Sorry, early sixties, just before the Beatles. So there was a track called Mild Man's A Dustman by Lonnie Donegan. And uh, a couple of guys played the guitar badly. And I sort of said, I'll, I'll do the vocals. And uh, so we went into the school hut and suddenly there was an announcement, you know, impromptu concert. So probably about 80 or 90 boys turned up. I probably forgot the words and got sacked. So I thought, yes, this isn't a good start for my lyric, my, my vocalist career. So let's switch to guitar. And... Um, yeah, it's funny because I, I had lessons to start with with this um, brilliant classical guitarist who wanted me to do the conventional thing. And by, by the time I started the lessons, the Beatles had, had come out. And, you know, the, the I, it's hard to describe the impact of that at the time because it was very, very new. Very, you know, please, please me was a complete, you know, you just sort of sat back and it was like, well, it, I must say it was like, um meeting with god but you know it was a sort of talk about stunning stunning revelation and i think so many people were affected by the vibrancy um the melodic quality you know they had everything really uh, and it was something that we'd not heard before so i had to discover it so what i used to do was get the guy to teach me the chords and so i learned to play pop songs via chord chords i didn't learn to read music at that stage so basically that started an era of um as I moved to the, to the next school, uh, pooling together guys that were good drummers, good bassists. The band we had at prep school was dreadful. We had one guy who used to play D7 the whole way through every song. That's any chord he knew. And the other guy, was the drummer, was sort of couldn't keep regular time and would he would sit there. Then he would occasionally sort of attack the drums, you know, with fury and then sit down again. So... He was either he was either very behind the times or miles ahead, other a la John Cage, you know, sort of serial music. But no, Charterhouse, when I moved on to Charterhouse, which is where the Genesis guys we eventually formed, well, what it what kept became a team of songwriters to start with, but only Mike Rutherford of the group was involved at that era. So we we formed basically what you'd call a covers band now. You know, doing Beatles, um, Stones, Kinks, Animals, Yardbirds, some throwback to the shadows. And um, Mike Rutherford was a rhythm guitarist. I was a lead guitarist. And um, dear friend of mine, Rivers Joe, who's not with us anymore, was the bassist. And we had a very good drummer called Rob Tyrrell. And so we uh, we kind of took the school by storm, but it was rather frowned upon by the authorities because this is the 60s, yeah. you know, and the 50s have been a kind of a, a period of... Um, while in Watership Down, they called it Tharn, you know, sort of stasis, really. Everything, you know, things hadn't moved on. And suddenly there's this explosion of colour. And we were part of that kind of uh, in incredible period of change. And the authorities felt very threatened by it. Um, it was too early for drugs. But we did tend to attract some of the what you might call not ne'er-do-wells, but the guys that weren't particularly good at sport or academics. And so it was seen as possibly a, uh, a not particularly constructive influence, if you like. So we met with opposition, definitely. You know, if you did badly in your, your um, you know, your sort of form order, you were banned for playing the guitar for two weeks. That's how they could get at you. So, 
And uh, Mike Rutherford particularly was in a very difficult house where the housemaster was a, a real, um, he was a very troubled man, actually, because he later committed suicide, God rest his soul. But he was a very troubled man. He was very sadistic. And I think in those days, there were a lot of people who were very damaged by the war still, you know, and it was all, all the stuff was not being treated. It was undiagnosed. Um, so, yeah, we, ha- we had sort of mixed dealings with that, really. But, um, yeah, so that was, that was, I mean, it was great fun taking on because we i think you know there were lots of millions of groups doing this but i think we were reasonably good and we were certainly the best at our school which had six or seven hundred boys so we had quite accolades then i mean mike rutherford and i had met at that stage early so we were we were sort of simpatico and we gradually morphed into writing courtesy of actually mainly courtesy and we were writing sort of bad blue stuff but we we I stumbled across a guy in the in the summer of the famous summer of love as they dubbed it sixty seven <clears throat> playing a twelve string in a field and I thought wow that's an amazing sound so I got my, I got my parents to buy me a very cheap twelve string and uh, that was the start of Mike and I experimenting with twelve strings in a in a kind of twelve string tambours and things and mm-hmm. just things that were slightly we weren't copying anybody because before that we'd been copyists. And yes. um, parallel to this in my house, I'd got to know two elder boys called Peter Gabriel and Tony Banks. And Tony Banks was a very good pianist. And there were other guys in the house who were very good pianists. And they'd all have a kind of rival thing for being able to play the most recent hit by so-and-so. Peter Gabriel was actually very quiet to start with, very unprepossessing, nice chap, um, but very quiet and not rebellious at all. Whereas Mike and I were quite, we were the more rebellious wing. Peter sort of almost overnight suddenly developed a very eccentric streak. And um, he started dyeing our shirts for us, turquoise, because you were only allowed to wear shirts that were slightly off-white. And he designed a hat that was actually patented by a company called Dunninger Piccadilly. And when he bought a car, he bought a decommissioned cab, which was very, very, very trendy in those days. Uh, You know, so he was basically driving a a London taxi, a decommissioned London taxi. So when we and Mike and I started getting together with the the other two and writing, and we we were probably more primitive. I mean, I hadn't realized Pete could sing for the first two years I was there, and suddenly he was because, as I say, he was quite a shy guy, and he remained so. But he'd suddenly be on the dining room table, sort of cavorting and singing. And it was like, hang on, this guy's got an alter ego. There's a different side to this man. You know, when he when he's when he's acting, if you like, or when he's when he's assuming a persona. And and this actually uh, translated itself to when we went on the road and we did the first what we call a schoolboy album with Jonathan King, which was basically um, quite amateurish and um, didn't do a lot. But it was, you know, we, we learned a fair bit. But. Um, yeah, we decided to give it a, after our exams, we decided to give it a go and sort of go on the road and just see if we could get anywhere doing it that way around. So before that, we'd really just been songwriters, is the truth of it. I mean, Tony Banks was an accomplished keyboard player. I was a reasonable electric guitarist. Mike had been a rhythm guitarist who sort of just taught himself bass. And so we were a bit of a ramshackle crew, actually. We saw ourselves as composers. We were signed initially to a publishing company called John Joe, which was uh, Joe Roncaroni and Jonathan King, and uh, as songwriters. But we were coming up with these sort of five-minute epics, which was not what they wanted at all. Jonathan King very much wanted us in the style of the stuff he was doing, which was very, very poppy. 
And we did do a couple of singles that were very poppy. And to this day, I think it's the best thing that ever happened to the group. They weren't successful because had they been, uh, we'd have been directed down this poppy conduit and we'd never have done the experimental stuff that came later that led to all the some of the greater what, what is now called prog tracks of theirs. Um, so, yes, we went on the road and initially Pete was very, very, very shy. Mike Rutherford and I used to spend so long tuning the 12 strings because the 12 strings would go out of tune. And it was all quite primitive in those days because you're sitting quite close to the amplifiers, which would feed back with the pickup put on the the acoustic 12 yeah. string. So we get this dreadful thing where you get, it wasn't so much the sort of screeching cat's feedback, but that sort of that kind of funnel noise from a ship. And neither of us would know which one of us it was. So we both turned down and leave Pete sort of singing by himself. It was really chaotic, actually. But so basically that at one stage, he was so nervous that the roadie, uh, our, our main roadie, was going to do the announcements. But I, I think... Pete owes us, owes us something, Mike and I, because without our 12 strings going out of tune, he'd never have invented this persona where he started getting outside the Peter Gabriel we knew and, and looking at the audience straight on and talking. I mean, I never heard this stuff because I was busy deep in 12 string out of tune land and, you know, saying to Mike, are you, are you okay? Is that are you ready to go? And all the time was Pete was sort of developing this persona, this all these mythical stories, and letting his imagination, which is very fertile, just and people lapped, they really lapped onto it, and of course it grew and grew and grew, and he became a legend for that, courtesy of our out of tune twelve strings. I'd unfortunately had glandular fever before we went on the road, um, which um, I didn't know much about at the time, but it was probably it was the illest I've ever been. And uh, I then had to go straight into exams, what we call my A-level exams, which mm. is the ones you do for university. And I sort of managed to get through those. What I didn't know is that glandular fever can affect you for a year to a year and a half afterwards. And you have to be very careful with, you know, your your uh, what you do, your health and stuff. And mm. when we went on the road, we were... Although we were middle class boys and we had a, um, a, a, some help with the equipment from from parents, um, it went no further than that. So we were doing we were doing gigs on a shoestring, and you know the the main roadie was a friend of ours who would just bring along a sort of packed supper. You know we didn't go out to restaurants or socialise with guys. And we ended up by sort of dos if we were too far from home, we'd end up by just kind of dossing down on someone's floor. Yeah, uh, and this was during the winter, so it was actually pretty tough. And I, because we were living pretty rough, roughly at times, it affected my health, and I started getting sort of semi-glandular fever symptoms, which was irritating to the others. You know, I mean, uh, we didn't cancel gigs at that stage. I'll, I'll never know if it, it was um, connected because I have heard stories since that glandular fever can cause problems with your nervous system i knew i knew uh i was actually going out with an australian girl who told me that her brother had been a hockey goalkeeper and uh got glandular fever and it just sort of he he never he was never a hockey goalkeeper again yeah. but i started developing this sort of chronic stage fright um not just sort of nerves but where you sort of you know you kind of be, you could sort of think you're just going to get on stage and not be able to remember anything apparently it's mm -hmm. a classic actor's thing you know, uh, you're sort of saying it 
uh, and not knowing how you're saying it. And I was looking at my fingers and thinking, how am I doing it? And of course, because it was such a freaky and, and weird experience, I couldn't really talk about it to the others. So I endured two or three months of what was purgatory, to be honest. We were so well drilled that I played sort of like a robot, really. But um, every time going on stage and thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to mess this up, because there was a lot of pressure. We were we were trying to get a record company, trying to get a major agent in, interested, and we'd flogged our guts out. And, you know, it was like everyone, it was like a big pressure, you know, you've got to perform, you've got to yeah. perform. And uh, eventually I got bronchial pneumonia, which sounds worse than it is. It wasn't that, actually that bad, not as bad as the glandular, but it was like my 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 mind uh, held up, but my body sort of went under. And uh, I recovered from that, which was, it was annoying for the others because we had to cancel some gigs. You know, I was advised by doctors after that, you know, because of, because of my health, actually not a good idea, really. And um, I think things in the group have got a bit, inevitably, you know, if you all live too close together, which we yeah. did, we didn't have the wisdom to know you need to get space from each other. And we lived on top of each other and we all got quite irritated. And I think the vibe in the band was relationships. I won't say broke down, but, um, you know, it wasn't a lot of fun. Uh, there was no time to rehearse any new material either because we were doing gig after gig after gig. Our music being quite um, complex, it took quite a while to write a new piece and knock it into shape so that it could be performed properly you know yeah. it wouldn't just happen you couldn't do it in an afternoon so we were doing the same material for a long time and it got very dull from that point of view and uh tempers got frayed and uh, i think looking back on it you know taking it taking a, a an objective view i think there were too many composers in the group it's quite unusual i mean there are other bands that have had uh four or five composers but it isn't the norm yeah. um if you if you go through uh most of the groups um i mean there are some obviously but uh and i think that probably that although what happened to me wasn't directly affected by that i think it was probably an inevitable consequence that something had to give because there were too many people with sort of strong ideas you know i think it's no wonder that they ended up with three main you know writers because by that stage they had their areas of delineation completely marked you know you got one guy who's the singer the drummer who writes another guy who handles all the keyboard wing another guy who handles all the guitar wing there was we you know we had sort of um duplication if you like when i was in the group and it, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't that easy actually so yes so i i then left in in many ways reluctantly and um mooched around a bit and then studied the formal side of music sort of in some respects slightly reluctantly uh because i found aspects of it were um, a bit set a bit died in the wool but other aspects of it were vital because i wanted to write orchestral music because we'd had an experience on the first album where we'd had to use an arranger and we had no say you know so he put all these string string yeah. lines and horn lines which were kind of alien to us really i remember having a sort of road to damascus thing here in Kare uh sibelius's Karelia suite and thinking wow you know because i think when i was growing up I associated classical music with the sort of Mozart and Beethoven period, the very kind of quite ornate, but quite arguably a little bit dry, 
a little bit mannered, maybe. I mean, obviously, everyone has their own opinion. But I, I preferred stuff that was, mu- was much more romantic from the Romantic Impressionist period with more modern harmonies. And uh, once I started hearing stuff like that, Debussy, Ravel, and all those kind of people, it was a bit of a, it was quite a, you know, it was quite a revelation. Uh, and I wanted to know how to do all that. I um, I studied part-time because I didn't learn to read music till I was 19. I learned piano more formally because the early writing was very, very informal. I mean, it was some of the actually I wrote the you know the basic part of the visions of angels like like that with the old style, but I was very limited. So uh, it was frustrating having to sort of relearn, if you like, and sight read at snail's pace. And I used to get really, really uh, impatient, um, but it was worth it. Yeah, and I qualified as a classical guitar teacher, so I had letters after my name i had a fallback position and then um you know genesis had got to the point where people started to do solo albums there was a summer so mike rutherford and i you know because we'd had a pool of material before we went on the road uh only some of which was used so we used some of that or quite a lot of it as the basis for what became the geese and the ghost but it was actually recorded quite a lot earlier than when it came out uh, for various reasons, and um, it was a bit ironic because when it came out, people it, the prog era was beginning to um, fade, and it was the wrong timing. And also, um, I was getting stick. They were saying he's cashing in on the Genesis lead singer, and actually, when Phil did the recordings in '75, they were still auditioning other singers. There's no way he was the Genesis singer in those days, yeah. so it was a little bit unfair. But um, but yeah, it was the timing was not good because we then had punk and disco, and uh, I mean, you know, history reads that the prog bands sort of, you know, they 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 very much suffered a backlash from the press. You know, there was a complete sort of vault fast. Suddenly, everyone was supposed to be doing angry seventeen or eighteen year old um, pop songs, rock songs, and um, you know, I mean, I saw the whole thing as a kind of journey from the Beatles taking us through love me do please please me right to day in the life you know and the whole thing was a musical journey and then i felt that then there was the underground scene with bands like family and progaharam doing these longer tracks which had slight often quite classical influences but just much more experimental in form complete experiences you know that journey continued and somewhere along the line i think maybe it got a bit some of the stuff by the bands got a bit convoluted and so it was inevitable there was going to be some kind of a backlash i do remember there was a constant cry worse than new beatles you know and uh but it was rather undignified the way that the press and certainly the rec- the record companies as well rather kind of n- turned on some of yesterday's heroes as it were and kind of knifed them in the back it wasn't a particularly edifying time so a uh, little old me enters the stage around this time completely bad timing and obviously i you know I, my record reviews were awful because people just didn't you know the press it wasn't cool yeah. it was cool to be um angry and um i mean i was only 26 you know i was younger than the police stranglers and other people who hadn't who hadn't made it first time rounds some of them but you know it was just the wrong style for the wrong time so um you know i can't say earlier it would have been successful anyway but um it was difficult because I found myself being told uh, what style to write in. I think 
computers have, have liberated people very much in that respect. You know, you can record at home, yeah. you can do your own thing, um, and you're not at the behest of a record company. In those days, you could only get, you know, the only way you could get your music recorded was going into a big studio, 24-track tape, not endless tracks on a computer, and you had to do what the guys in the industry said. So I found myself having to to write the sort of pop songs that we were having a, a go at doing not terribly well uh 10 years previously and I, I found it i found it a bit of a struggle i mean some of some of them were all right but some of them were a bit crass you know and i didn't feel comfortable with it and of course the people that liked the geese of the ghost were saying what are you doing you know why are you and one had to try and explain well sorry gov it's not me it's the record company they want yeah. this kind of thing so i think we were all in those days sort of steered very much by record company demands unless you had a big enough following that would stay stay faithful to you. Um, but I think there was quite a lot of on-the-fence stuff. I remember meeting a guy when we were playing cricket, believe it or not, and years later he said to me, he was a bit younger than me, well, no, he would have been about five years younger than me. He said he went up to Nottingham University with this copy of The Geese and the Ghosts, and he said he had to get rid of it because it was so unfashionable. You know, people were laughing at him. Yeah, no, that it was a, it was a real witch hunt here. It was a real witch hunt. It was one or the other kind of thing. It it, it was very undiscriminating, which and and, and unforgiving, and there was very much two sides to it. You know, that there wasn't a sort of mutual respect. I, I've always made a big contrast between the way that. When uh, the Beatles and the Stones came in, we still respected the shadows and people like that. Um, but, you know, we just didn't listen to this stuff so much. There wasn't a sort of campaign of vitriol. Yeah. And the press, it seemed to be a competition for who could be as nasty about some of the bands as possible. Uh, yes went to the States. ELP went to Italy. I think England was was not a, a pleasurable place to be for a lot of musicians at that time. So I... um. I found myself drifting away from that and into doing television music because, uh, you know, I'm basically my face really didn't fit. Um, during the 80s, I did quite a lot of television music, quite a lot of attempting to write songs for other people. But I've never really had the, 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 the sort of what I would call the commercial touch, you know, the ability. There's just something that... Um, some people have which is the ability to write a song that everybody wants to cover i think it's quite rare if you look amongst the prog bands there's very few of them that have had songs sort of covered by major artists um you know in the way that someone like yesterday has been covered so many times yeah i found myself doing then a lot of wildlife stuff in the 90s which was great and um you know i carried on doing albums but they were much smaller scale you know, guitar pieces, piano pieces, and some dreamy synth stuff. And uh, I had a bit of a turn up for the books in the late 80s when I got signed to Virgin as a uh, Virgin Publishing and also then um, Virgin Records. And I was able to do a much bigger album called Slow Dance, which was a much more sort of arranged and larger piece. And that was very popular with some of the fans, but not fine enough, not popular at all in America. They didn't sort of really get that. They much preferred an album before which was in the sort of new age i don't know if, you, if you're aware there was a sort of era in the mid 80s where there was this kind of new age boom which was basically kind of backcloth music to pictures and stuff and um a lot of it a lot of people thought it was very boring 
Um, it, I think its main function for a lot of people was it was a kind of a background to something else, you know, healing, if you're doing yoga, any of those kind of things. It yes, really worked. Yeah. It was very, very calming. But it wasn't about development. You couldn't suddenly switch to a seven, eight section in the middle of a quiet section, you know, because people were chilling, you know. So yeah. you had to stay on one level. So you couldn't really do anything that was particularly dynamic. And therefore, I mean, it was quite nice in the sort of hypnotic sense uh but quite dull in terms of the ability to be musically adventurous really and the album slow dance i did which was you know the bigger canvas album was was had a lot of changes not for the sake of it but just you know more like you know you listen to an orchestral piece and it doesn't all go along on on one level you know there's a lot of changes and highs and lows and 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 dramatic and dynamics so then along along the way, I was very lucky because I started doing what was rather disparagingly called library music in those days. And it was regarded as kind of stock background music. Yeah. Um, but it grew in it grew in strength with more TV channels whereby and also particularly where programs needed to be turned around quickly, weekly programs, documentaries and stuff. Somebody needed music, then got time to get a guy to come in and you know do brief him demos take them away it's all got to be done within a day or two so with the advent of computers as well editors could download the stuff they go on do searches find tracks yeah. download them and then you know you, when you do library music which became now it's called production music you do actually sign away the the rights i mean it could be used in a porn film that's any downside but you don't know much about that yeah. um I remember making four grand from a piece of music that we used on a catwalk in a Finnish in a Finnish model thing. You know, you yeah. think, "Why well, is it really weird?" I was lucky in that I never got asked to do anything that was really cheap. I think the worst it was was uh, sort of a, maybe a bit backgroundy, a bit functional. You know, like just kind of drones with slightly unfolding sounds on top. But I never had to do any what I would call irritating, chirpy kind of like some adverts and so yes. nothing nothing ever to be really ashamed about you know i, I was quite lucky because i had a foil between the library music which was making some good money finally and being in, able then also to do um more simple solo albums on the side basically the 90s and the 2000s really um yeah really really lucky now, the trouble is that then a lot of when spotify and stuff like that came in mm. A lot of rock musicians realized, you know, the royalties started to go down and touring was what touring became essential. Everyone tried to pile into library music because it could be essentially, you know, essentially a form of um, pension, really. Yes. And of course, it's it's got to a stage of overkill now. There's too much. There's too many companies. And uh, I mean, I was really lucky to, to get in at a time where there wasn't that saturation of the market because there certainly is now. So that's a sort of brief synopsis of, um, of where we are. The difference between doing library music or production music, as you call it, and yeah. doing music for yourself, is there one you prefer more than the other? Or is it just, okay, cool, today I'm focusing on production music, tomorrow I'm focusing on creating music for an album. Are they equally enjoyable for you? Your own album work uh, is going to be closest to your heart. I mean, sometimes takes longer to do. For instance, uh, I mean, the most recent guitar album I did was called, uh, a solo album, it's called Strings of Light. 
which was a, a guitar album. And it took a lot of work because I was doing a lot of library music. Hmm. I wasn't sort of fighting fit in terms of my type technique. You know, I could pick up a guitar and play uh, a piece of music that sounded uh, quite, you know, nice or hopefully nice in bits. But the difference between that and it being concert standard, if you like, for an album, and also the stat, not just the ability to play it well, but to have the stamina, because what I didn't want to do was do it in edits, you know, some of these pieces. I didn't want to sort of do one bit, then another bit, because then it gets, you don't get the dynamic flow and the build. So what we did was, like with my engineer, we would um, do what a lot of people do, which is you do the whole track, and then when you aren't covered on certain sections where you don't feel it's quite right, or maybe there's a wrong note or a plough, you actually drop in for that section. Yeah. But you've got the build. Um, but the price of that was the old thing of, you know, it's 5% inspiration, 95% perspiration. So lots and lots of practice. Yeah. So I think the stuff dearest to your heart is always going to be your solo albums. But there's a, a joy with library music, which is you can create a track in five minutes and that's it, done. You know, because I would do some synth things where I would maybe have two or three keyboards with different sounds. I'd maybe have a drone bass here. I'd have a melody sound here and I'd have some ornamental effects here. And I could actually literally even four keyboards at a time and hold something with the pedal so I could create a track uh, sometimes, which would probably cost me five minutes of my life. Um, and actually, that was great, that quick turnaround. And um, I think also, I mean, there are so many fantastic companies producing sounds now. I mean, it's mind boggling selecting what to buy in terms of what we call virtual instruments, you know, the stuff yeah. that you 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 play on your keyboard because there are so many great sounds and um i mean i think for me the spitfire are very good on orchestral stuff but on on non-orchestral stuff there's a company called spectrosonics i'm not sure if you're aware of them but from the start they've been absolutely brilliant they kicked off with um things like one was called distorted reality and um you still hear some of the samples on that today. It was run by a guy called Eric Persing that we used to call God, and he is actually a God-fearing man, actually, Eric. But unbelievable. They did a thing called Omnisphere, which was just stunning. I mean, you know, I sometimes joke that a gorilla could do a good library album. You know, you go away on holiday, leave the gorilla in there, because you just put your finger on one key and yeah. it starts doing this amazing, unfolding, undulating, developing wave. I mean, not quite. Yeah, so you're spoilt for choice now. It's like a child in a vast sweet shop. Yes. Vast, vast, vast sweet shop. Not knowing, it's, I mean, it's all wonderful. or Well, a lot of it's wonderful. Sometimes, obviously, as you're going through the sound libraries, you're coming across stuff that you think is maybe not quite as good as others. But, but it's impossible. I would say it's impossible to keep up now because there's just so much. You have to be very selective about what you choose. What keeps you motivated to stay in the industry, whether it's production music, doing your own albums? What is it that every morning gets that fire in your belly and says, okay, cool, I'm going to carry on today and create something amazing? I think that, well, I can't speak for everyone, but I would have thought from painters to poets to novelists to musicians or composers that you, 
you know it's something in the in the blood isn't it you kind of need it for your well-being for your self-expression some people are more mercenary about it obviously they they do it for a specific purpose and then they retire but i think if it if it's a love and it's a vital form of um, getting things out of your system i think i think artists are very lucky in that way which is you know they can express some of their their feelings that could come out in less constructive ways um i'm not necessarily saying violent but you know that they, they, they they're able to express it through music and sometimes to capture an emotion or a, a time or a scene in a way that makes you feel you know a degree of pride afterwards i mean as much as that i feel quite a lot of embarrassment about stuff i've done as well so i mean you know it's a real mixture but i think we are blessed i think i just love the sound i mean if i pick up a 12 string um certain chords just thrill me still i don't think that that's ever gonna go to be honest um i mean you can overdo it obviously if you if you have you spent too much time on it but i don't think that that ever goes the I, I don't see how it could do really and the same with piano more bit more complicated on the computer side because i think as the computer side gets more complicated mm. older brains find it more difficult to keep up with so probably that's going to become a bit of a limitation because you're you're constantly having to go to sort of night school to relearn this stuff as it develops you know i've grown to love the piano so much as well um that um the combination of the two is a great again they're a great foil to each other you have too much guitar you go to piano and also covering different types of guitar as well i mean less less electric although i have been mucking about with electric with through a lot of um fancy pedals and stuff which make it not sound like an electric guitar so again we're talking about more sort of ambient kind of mm. stuff using an electric guitar in that way to create huge sound pictures we're not quite sure what the instrument is particularly if you use a volume pedal so um there's a huge range of stuff across across the pianistic and the guitaristic as they call it palette to enjoy i think they probably you know you would probably tend to say you know a, a, a musician will die when his head just goes bang down on the piano lid <laughs> um providing his hands can still play so i can't speak for everybody but that's that's the way it is for me so the podcast is listened to throughout the world uh uk usa is the main audience uh south africa naturally australia belgium so as a final message to the listening audience, what would you like to say? Well, I'd, I'd first of all like to thank all the fans of mine that have persevered through all the eras of what would appear to be uh, incomprehensible changes. But I would say that bear in mind, do bear in mind that the record companies dictated a lot of that. And then, of course, the lack of finance dictated the paring down of things and um so very much the I would love to have developed the geese and the ghosts style and done elaborated on that, but that was very much cut short by the um, the uh, change in the record industry at the time. Thank the people also who from whom I've had some wonderful feedback about you know out tracks or albums that have helped people through difficult periods mm. uh, and have meant something to them. I mean that's that's worth its weight in gold. You know it makes it makes it makes up for all the 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 95 perspiration part you know <laughs> i mean I, how long i'm going to be able to go on making records i don't know really that remains to be seen but i mean we've been doing a series of re-releases through cherry red where we've tried to always firstly remaster 
But more importantly, I think, is also include a bonus CD that isn't, as, as my friend Steve Hackett calls it, a bogus CD. Mm. You know, a bonus CD of yep. proper tracks, uh, not just chuck away stuff or demos done in the toilet, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, things that have a connection that are con- contemporaneous with the time. And I'm extremely lucky because I have a guy called John Dan, Jonathan Dan, who used to work at the BBC. And he's been forensic in going through old tapes and discovering material that is of the time. And for instance, they're releasing my um, wildlife CD. And and you have to decide which of the pieces that work without a picture that you think stand. Uh, The danger is that they're not long enough for people and they don't develop um, enough. Because again, you're you're fulfilling the discipline here of actually following a picture. But so you have to be very selective. And and yes, it isn't perfect from that point of view. But what we've tried to do with some of it is create suites where you you segue from one piece into the other mm-hmm. that needs careful architecture to make it work and flow. And John has managed to find some some decent stuff. You know, it's not chuck away stuff. People people find it valuable. For their collection because i think getting people it's like, it's like people asking to buy a painting twice i always feel guilty about it that people will do it because they're completists but i feel it's irresponsible to not try and add something which is really significantly extra to the original listeners go out and get anthony's uh retrospective or the re-releases of his music so anthony it's been a pleasure having you on slaves one thank you for your time today and this is Slips Vance signing out.